0: And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at t slash now.
2: this
1: is talk easy i'm sam fragoso welcome to the show We return to our very special conversation with artist marina abramovich she's currently the subject of a show at the royal academy of arts in london making her the first female artist to host a major solo exhibition at the 255 year old institution the recognition is long overdue as a pioneer in performance art which she began creating back in the 1970s throughout her career she's often tested her own physical limits in ways we haven't seen in public spaces before or since. And yet, perhaps her most daring performance, the one that you probably know her from, is her most sedentary. In The Artist is Present from 2009, Marina sits silently at a wooden table in which a queue of people, one by one, sit across from her in a chair waiting to be occupied. Over the course of nearly three months, for eight hours a day, inside the MoMA Atrium in New York City, she met the gaze of over a thousand strangers, many of whom were moved to tears in her presence. The piece would garner Marina international recognition, catapulting performance art into a larger cultural conversation, a conversation that continues here today on our show, as both Marina and I discuss her five decades of groundbreaking work and how she continues to create art out of hardship at the age of 76. I sat down with her last year inside her New York City apartment. And to help illustrate exactly what we're talking about, we've put together a virtual exhibit displaying some of the pieces discussed in this conversation. If you'd like to follow along as you listen, you can visit our website at talkeasypod.com. That's talkeasypod.com. We've also included a link in the description of this episode. We'll be back next Sunday with a new episode with a guest that we have long wanted to have on this show. Until then, here's my talk with artist Marina Abramovich. I hope you enjoy.
3: You know why... the people don't like to people get into the apartments because they don't like to reveal anything about themselves but i don't have secrets
1: (laughs) i I have no secrets which is so incredibly relaxing you may be the first person to ever come on the show with no secrets
3: you know when i do things i am here with you i'm not
1: where else that's how i do the show yeah marina thank you uh for having me in your apartment This is very unusual, especially in pandemic times. I think I totally ignore pandemic
3: times. Looks to me, I don't know, I work more than ever. I travel more than ever. I'm really lucky I never got sick. I got all vaccinations, boosters, like everybody else. But to me, the pandemic time, okay, sorry. What's that? It's a ring. Is it you? Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The bell rang. Marina walked to the door. Now she returns.
3: They're renovating there. They're kind of mixing the door. Okay. So my pandemic time was incredibly creative. For an artist, solitude is so important. In these two years, there was plenty of solitude. Also, for me, nature was very important. I developed this exercise that to go to nature and look the tree you really like and hug the tree and complain for a minimum 15 minutes. And I've done this in England, and people really start complaining much longer than 15 minutes, so much to complain in England. They start crying, they start pouring their heart out and talk about their lives. I really understood how much nature can heal.
1: Well, we're going to do a whole show with very little complaints. <laughs> We're not going to complain too much.
3: I'm not complaining type. I'm actually am very positive. You know, to me, when I see something very tragic, something very difficult is happening, it's always reason behind to really understand why things are happening, not happening. I love the this saying of Sufis. I think it's a Rumi. He say, the worst is the best. And why? Because then when it comes to the bottom of things, then somehow the gravitational force pulls you up after every rainy days of the sun. How are you grappling with
1: what's happening in Russia and Ukraine?
3: I was just reflecting on this whole thing. You know, first of all, I've just been there. So my relation to this is really like something's happening to my family and it's devastating. And I've just been in a Kiev walking on the streets and seeing the buildings being demolished and had the suffering and the people in the subways and no food and no electricity, no water and feel almost guilty how lucky I am here. I'm here in America and I just, uh, you know, go to the bathroom and have a hot shower anytime I want. And then also the question, but what you can do in this situation? How you can help? I also have the same questions when there was war in my country, in ex-Yugoslavia. And then I realized the only thing I can do is do my work as best as I can and give the message through art. In that time, in the Yugoslav war, I created this piece, Balkan Baroque, which I washed the bones repeatedly for five days in a 30 degrees Celsius, when the warmth was coming out of the meat and blood was everywhere. And the message was that you never can wash the blood from your own hands. And that image is looking very apocalyptic, you know, me sitting on the pile of two thousand five hundred bones and try to wash them without any result.
1: That was in nineteen ninety-seven
3: yeah, exactly. But the part of this more important was it was for that moment rather than my country. But that image, I also want to be transcendental. I want to be that image that we can use over and over again wherever war is somewhere. So now is Ukraine. Just before I, uh, this war started, the last only few months ago, I've been several times in Ukraine because I was invited to build monument for Babi. Yar. Uh, Babi, are, it's one of the very dark part of history of the Second World War. In 1943, 130,000 Jewish people, gay people, and the gypsies been killed in three days, stripped naked and killed on the hill and thrown into the mass grave. And then, after that, it was just put the concrete over this whole thing and became the park. And this park stays through the Nazi period, through the Ukrainian period, and Russia came and Ukraine come back into the dependency. And never been any kind of memory about that event. And some Holocaust people who still survive, some people who remember this whole thing, and never had any point that they can actually mourn or they can, you know, sit in silence and reflect on this event till Zelensky, the president, came. And Zelensky is a Jewish and he felt his duty as the first thing, actually, to create the park of the memory about Babiar. And he wired some artists, and I make the proposal, and my proposal was accepted. And I was very touched and really full responsibility what I'm going to do there. So, I was thinking how I can conceptually prolong this wall of prayer in Jerusalem all the way to the Ukraine, into the wall of crying, healing, and forgiveness. And I came with this idea of 40-meter, very big wall, enormous. I don't know how many tons, actually, to construct freestanding wall in this park. And the wall was made from the coal, black coal, who actually came out of Ukraine. And then I ordered 250 pure crystals from the middle of the mines in Brazil, and I positioned them in uh, three places, in exactly position of the head, heart, and stomach, uh, with the different sizes of different size of people, including the children. And the instruction of that wall was that you go in there, face the wall, and, press at three points of your body against the crystals, and close your eyes and just contemplate, remember, and also get healing from crystals that historically had been possible. And it was incredible to see 40 people standing against the wall. And when was the opening of this old Babiar event, for the opening came Zelensky, came the president of Germany, and the president of Israel. And these three presidents never faced the wall in their life. They always faced the audience. And I asked them actually to face the wall, and they did. And this was a very historical moment, you know. The idea of that monument is there for healing. And before the attack of Russia, there was always so many rumors in Ukraine. The wall would start frequently to be used more and more and more. And I hope there was still, after
1: this hell finish one day, I hope the wall be still there. Something you said early on, you and I sitting here in this beautiful apartment in New York. You feel some kind of guilt that you're here and your friends are in Ukraine. How much of your work do you think comes from a place of guilt? I don't think much,
3: actually, if I think really seriously. Lots of work come out of uh, missing love, out of uh, loneliness, broken heart, unhappiness. Uh, some kind of big drama, you know, I always think that generally, if you look history of art, it's not too many art come from happiness you need some kind of push into something that is different than your tranquil life. And always my old theory that, you know, if you're childhood, you have great childhood, it's difficult to become good artist because you have to have a difficult childhood because there's so much work to do, to, to work with. And I'm always, you know, I take my body as, as a center of the work, like, you know, pushing mental, physical limits, but also the body's universe. and. Nobody knows even how our brain works. We think that we have 30% working, but actually scientists have just developed the theory that we only have 20% work. Some people
1: seem to have less than
3: 20%. <laughs> I'm sure, but the, the thing is that, you know, if I take my body's universe, it's endless exploration, endless exploration. And to me, in, the, in the, my early period of work, I was really kind of pushing these physical limits. And now I'm so much more interested in the brain and, and mental limits, which is so much harder. But I think the work, if we come just uh, about guilt, I, I don't think that's interested. I think it's so much more important to kind of expand consciousness and see things in, in a kind of big view. I always love this big view. I don't know, I have this story that everybody should go to the the Museum of Natural Art History here in New York, and there is this uh, conservatory, and actually this is for children mostly, and then you go there and you're lying on these very comfortable chairs, and then all swear open, and there is a universe, and then you see a Milky Way, and a tiny little a shiny dot, they point it with a laser and say, and this is Earth. And then comes this voice like uh, George Clooney or whatever, and say, this is a planet Earth. And we look this this tiny little blue thing, and on this tiny little blue thing how many shit is happening, and how much we don't care about this little blue Earth. It's terrible. So I always try to have this view from the plane, you know, on the whole thing, and to see this in the context of the planet, in the, cosmos, the cosmic, black holes, universe. When I was a child, my big question was always, what is behind the cosmos? Where are
1: we now? There's a piece of poetry that you discover in your childhood that I think informs the artist as present. It comes from Rilke. It goes, Earth, isn't this what you want? To arise within us, invisible. Isn't it your dream? to be wholly invisible someday. O earth, invisible, what if not transformation is your urgent command?
3: This is so incredible. You see, Rika is my big, big love. And this was uh, related to the Great Wall that I walked together with Ulai, each of us two and a half thousand kilometers to come to the middle and say goodbye. One of the reasons we wanted to do this because NASA report was also that only visible construction human made on our planet can be seen from the moon, from outer space. It's the pyramids and Great Wall of China. So, before NASA, before satellites, before anything, the second century poet Chinese said, Earth is small and blue, and I'm just a little crack in it. Confession of the Great Wall of China. I mean, how he explained this complete astral vision of somebody looking from up into the earth
1: in the second century. This idea of transformation, this is recurring throughout your work. The artist is present as being. Represented by a video installation in this upcoming exhibition. For people who may remember this piece, or those who don't know about it, how do you think about this performance now? You see, this is 12 years later.
3: And uh, one of the reasons why I want to show to actually this piece, now in a gallery after 12 years, is really that I have very large young audience. I my generation is not kind of my audience. And so many of them never had the opportunity to see this work. It's a huge opportunity to actually reconstruct it. But also what is happening in this in this piece, it's that I documented lifetime exactly, which is insane. We are talking 716 hours of the documentation I was thinking how I can present this. I was very conscious about recording this historical event. Even if you're never going to sit there and look 76 hours, but in your mind you know that's real time, real labor, which I put in, and it's not fake. I never stand up, I never drink the water, I never moved, so it's just to be there present for this period of time. So what we had there, we had one camera who filmed the whole situation, which is two chairs and table, two months, and later on table was removed, just two chairs, and then we film. You know, on one side, me, first month's in blue color, because dress was blue. Second month's in red, I need more energy. And the third month's purification, white color. So that each of the square, which is actually film on my face, it's actually eight hours multiplied by three months. The only time that is 10 hours is every Tuesday when the museum is open, 10 hours. So it's really created as a diary. On another side, you have people, every single square, is amount of people who sit that day. Some of them sit five minutes, 20, 30. I have the guy who sit the entire seven hours. I have the same man sit 21 time in the different periods. I have people returning, coming back, and so on. So the second screen on the opposite is like pulsating up and down, up and down, up and down. And in the middle, you have original two chairs and the table. So it's real time. You go into kind of time capsule to see this piece. And then it's very important, another thing about this installation, the photography. In the 70s, when you record performance art, the photographer never been told what to do because also performance sometimes is very impulsive or is very improvised, so you never know what's going to happen. And then sometimes it's 15 minutes, one hour, two hours. So the photographer will come, take some shots, go smoke a cigarette, come back, take another shot. So what you see, it's not really exact what happened there. And also is influenced by the vision of the photographer, what he sees and not what actually see the performer after seeing documentation. And here I have Marconelli, who I asked to photograph every single person, which means that he's the first photographer is in history to be there exact amount of time like me, with exact same conditions. He could go to the toilet, he could not go to eat, he, he have to be there to photograph every single person. And so most of the people sit there and cry and the marco Nelli told me that he will actually photograph different sequences but we also will make the point of waiting that the tear reach the cheek and the light just kind of hit that point that's glowing wow the photographer and we just actually published the the
1: book it's 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 just incredible for 760 and a half hours you're sitting motionless in the MoMA atrium. Again, this is eight hours a day, every day, ten hours on Fridays for three months. I have a question. We'll come back to some of this later, but I have a question. You and I, just sitting here now, you're an extremely excitable, animated person that wants to go from here to here in conversation, and, and, and offering tea, and you've given me cookies and, and Japanese too, Japanese and and all these <laughs> treats and. I sense a kind of restlessness, even in the pandemic, you are creating endlessly. In the work, when you're sitting there for three months, did it calm you in some way? You know, I don't need to be calm. I am excited. I love things.
3: I love to explore. I'm curious. I love to see Every moment, the world like a child just, you know, born. This is so important. This, I feel that life in every pore of my body. And that work in you know, the performance work is something else. You enter to another type of yourself. You enter in your super self, how I can say. It's a transition, you know? You create the concept and then you execute this concept. And that's not the life, but is life also, because three months doing this thing become life become my life because it was nothing else. Because there's no division no at divi- that point between no, no. art and your life. And then when you when I came back out of the performance, I made a big party. I went to the countryside with the twelve friends and we had a blast. We had the love and we had the humor and we have ice cream and we have fun. You know, this is the thing, you know, it's it's not contradiction. I have so many different people in me and all of them have a kind of um, equal presence and each one come in f- to function what this, what the concept needs, you know. So I and doing nothing regularly, you know, like uh, people say, oh my you I meditate every day. No, I'm not. But there is a time that I just wake up and I'm lazy and laziness is fine too. And then I have uh, some ideas and they're really shitty, so I'm thinking and love about them, and I'm not doing it, and then I have an idea, idea, I'm so obsessed by it, and I'm so afraid, it's like, hell, I have to do that? Like artist is present, that was a hell of an idea. But it was also opportunity to show the transformative power of performance art by doing absolutely nothing. That was incredible, but it was, every day could be the last, how heavy and difficult it was. But that was my chance to do that in a setting of the MoMA Art Museum and, and put performance right from no mainstream art into mainstream. And to me, I was 65 when I done MoMA. I could never do this when I was 25. For simple reason, I didn't have this willpower, I didn't have the wisdom, I could not concentration, and any of this. 65 was right time, and I do it. I mean, now I am next year 76, and I'm planning very big performance (laughs) in (laughs) Royal Academy, and I just done, you know, opera, which I'm directing, and playing myself, but not so difficult. You know, but I want to say it's so interesting to explore new territories, to see what's happening. This is not restlessness, this
1: is curiosity. And I love your curiosity. In 1976, you spoke on the role of the artist. You said, You have to realize that it is the decision of the artist to use their body, through which it becomes an instrument, then you only have to look at the message it carries. You have qualms, just like most other people. That is an ethical matter. But the artist has nothing to do with the morality. Once you go over that limit, the matter is about other things. Do you still believe that in 2022, that the artist has nothing to do with morality? But, you know, I just want to also say that taking back
3: all the artist work, we are talking about performances, we are talking about fluxes and happening, we are talking about futurists, we are talking about dadaists, t- I mean, just name it, all historical things, it would never happen now because of this, uh, the situation, how is judged. What does that mean? Look now political correctness today. Like you are accused of everything you say, every comment. You can't tell the jokes. You can't say nothing. It's so difficult. And the freedom of artists to be free and say whatever he wants is taken away. So the work that I've been doing in that period will never be possible now. Absolutely not. They will be judged in a totally different way. That And it's nothing to do with art at all. So this is what I'm really fed up with, uh, political correctness. I love telling jokes. I can't tell any joke anymore because I can't tell jokes about Mexicans. I can't tell about Jewish. I can't tell the joke. The only thing I can tell about Montenegro people are my own. But everything else, I have great Jewish joke, actually, that I can tell. So the two Jewish guys meet on the street. And one Jewish guy say, okay, tell, you, tell me just in one word how you feel. And the guy say, good. Okay, if you need a two words to tell me how you feel say, uh, not good. <laughs> it's so stupid. I love it. It's just simple. And nobody got hurt.
1: <laughs> okay. So, let's stick on this for one moment before we go back. This is something I hear about often, that political correctness, cancel culture, is getting in the way of true artistic expression. But what has it done to your work? Has it in any way prohibited you from making something you wanted to make? No. Haven't you made everything you've wanted? It's true, I, because I, I don't give a
3: shit about it. <laughs> this is why <laughs> I don't, I really don't. And I take my freedom. You know, I've been criticized so much constantly. When I was in ex Yugoslavia doing my early performances, one now, in every art history book. It was terrible things about them, that I should be put in mental hospital and that is not art, that this is a, this is shame and so on. And this go on forever. And then I was this poor artist who everybody liked to be discovered. Then I was discovered. Then in MoMA, I was celebrated. Then they start you know, telling me how I'm celebrity now and this is not art. Then they're using the fashion clothes because I get fashion clothes from the friends. Then I am become this conspiracy theory, which is another shit. You you know that time at least they before they told me I'm satanic priest now they actually they upgrade
1: me into the high priestess so, i mean this go on and on and, and on and by the way i'm really looking forward to the satanic parties you invited me to
3: <laughs> you know i am whatever you do you know but and i'm target and i can't change that all what I can do is do my work the best as I can, as I've always been doing, regardless of the opinions. And opinions are constantly up and down, up and down. You know, the more you're exposed and the more you're into the world, the more you have hate and love. Nobody's ever indifferent about my work. Or they hate me or they love me. Isn't that a good thing? It's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> I'm not comp- not complaining, just, just noticing. But sometimes the criticisms bother you. I hate lies. If I do my work and I give 150% what I'm doing and I give every atom of my energy to the work, I'm okay with this because I can't do more. And whatever you tell me is good or not, I I can't change it. But if I don't do this 150%, I'm the worst judge to myself. I get sick. I don't go out to the street. I I really know I didn't do my best. But when they're telling me that I am uh, trafficking children and I am satanist, this is, incredibly hurtful because it's total lie and absolutely manage my function of an artist and my message. That's something that I can't take. Oh, wait, can I tell something more about... I need to get you something. You're going to give me something? No, 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 I have to make something? no, I want to talk about this.
1: Uh, just okay. And I just want to show you. Marina is in the kitchen grabbing what looks you know, to be a no. newspaper...
3: Artists are perceived differently than the male artists. It's kind of interesting. I just want this. This is a, the, the, the Guardian last week. It's a very big article, Guardian. Okay. That, you know, to me, I also like to talk about how somebody made an interview with me recently and they told me you are the only female artist who have that kind of public image like Ai like uh, Jeff Koontz like Damien Hirst not that there are female artists have I didn't think that way but then I'm thinking yes if I have that kind of what kind of image I have I'm talking just especially about the two Guardian's articles recently one was about my show in October last year in uh, Listen Gallery and then other one you know last week about publishing on my cards about Bramowitz's method. You know, I didn't know that when you write the article, the titles what articles are made from the different organizations. So I had the, both articles very well written by the people who are the art historian and they're good, but the titles are incredibly discouraging, diminishing, and vulgar. They're designed for people to click on it. It's, and that something bothers me. and this you don't have with the male artist. you have just with me who is the only public one here. I mean, okay, this is one just now. no, the one in October was Marina Abramović have a young lover, dirty jokes and mystical crystals. That was the worst kind of summary what my 50 years of my career is. So now I'm publishing this, uh, the cards have been really well reviews everywhere. And now the cover of the issue in, uh, in Guardian is Culture. For her next tricks, Marina Abramovich, Artist, Provocateur, Self-Help Guru. It's the most ugly titles I can possibly imagine. And I have to live with that. And when you read the article, this doesn't actually reflect the title at all. And why you think, my question to you,
1: is this happening? I think there's two reasons why. One, people are reading less and less, and publications across the globe have to continue to write headlines that are intentionally provocative to get eyeballs to get people to click so that advertisers keep coming back that's the financial part of it and that's true the second part is probably what you're saying which is you're a woman in the public eye and most of these articles even when the articles are written by women the headlines are written by men So there's clear sexism, too. But, you know, it's one thing to take this when you're in the beginning of your career or the mid-your career.
3: But when you're really 75, it's the last act of your life. You know, how long am I going to live? Till 80, 90, whatever. I hope 103, as my grandmother. But I just kind of have enough that my work finally should have the kind of weight and understanding which is more profound than these titles.
1: Well, I agree with you. So why don't we take a break? And when we come back... We'll dive into the work.
0: Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakeables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is Today. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase, a member, FDIC, 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras.
1: coming back you talk about at this point in your life wanting people to understand the work that you've made why don't we try to do that let's start with rhythm zero which you performed in 1974 in naples explain to people what exactly you did here you know by
3: that time I was already doing my performance work. Performance artists in those days was heavily criticized as masochists, as sadist, this is exhibitionism, that's not art at all, and so on and so on. And I come very angry and very fatal in that time when you're young. And they say, okay, let me see if I do something and see what will happen. If I put 72 objects on the table, which have the objects for pleasure and objects for pain and torture, including pistol with one bullet, and also the simple instruction that you can use everything on the table as you want, pleasure, pain, including killing me, in six hours. And I take all responsibility. And I'm standing dressed in black shirt and black jeans in the front of this table. Wow. That was kind of pretty bold <laughs> to do that. But I was ready to die. There was no question about it. You were ready to die. I was ready to die for art. You know, there is a wonderful set, the quotation of um, Bruce Nauman. He said, you know, the art is matter of life and death. Maybe sounds melodramatic, but it's also very true. This is how I took everything in my life as better life and death. This is why my work is so important to me. My work is everything I have. I pour my heart into it in every single work and it's true and it's vulnerable. And this is why young generation can react on me that way because they understand it's not bullshit. They understand that they have intuition, they have sense that I'm not playing anything. What I'm doing and what I see is what it is.
1: This is a matter of life and death. It's my understanding that a man placed a bullet in the pistol of one of your performances in that performance particularly.
3: So for this performance, it was normal gallery. People came from normal opening, not expecting anything. They came with their wives, they came with so. And these six hours, we are talking, you know, from the evening till two in the morning, and they were not expecting anything like that. Me standing there in the front of them, completely looking one point fixed, and all this possibility. So the first three hours they've been playing, they will give me the flowers, they will uh, feed me with a piece of cake. You know, all kinds of things that was available on the table for pleasure and and playing, but I took six hours. I gave them time to actually develop dark side of themselves, and then they start playing. They cut me on my neck, drink my blood, they put the cotton around my shoulders, and try to burn, they put the water over me, they carry me around, spread the legs, put the knife on the table between my legs, they done all of these things. Still, the one came with the pistol, put the bullet, put on my forehead, somebody started fighting, they throw the pistol away. There was all this incredible tension. Everything with Italians done to me, if you see the photographs, is reflection of three things. Poor Madonna, mother, three possibilities. The women would tell men what to do and they would take my tears from my eyes. They would not do anything. And they cut my clothes, they exposed my breasts. When they, one gave me the rose, other one take the needles of the rose and step in, into my breasts. I was standing there and I absolutely didn't react. If they put my hand up, I leave that way. If they move me, I had no reaction at all, like a puppet. And this went on and on and on. The Only they didn't rape me because they was there with the wives, but they could go in any direction. And after six hours, I was really naked, full of blood, uh, wet, hair falling apart. It was horrible. The galleries came to me and whispered my ear, six hours is finished. And I start moving towards them to the public. They all ran away, literally, they ran away. They could not face me as me. And then I came to the hotel, I look myself in the mirror, and a piece of gray hair in my hair.
1: After that performance you just described. Gray hair. <laughs> with the gray hair, what did it tell you about people? It's, it was very important because actually two performances, it was
3: very important to me. The Rhythm Zero, and many, many years later, artists. Is present because of the same reason, in relation to public. Because in the first one, I really pushed the dark side. And I understand in that process that public can kill you. When I understood that, I didn't want to deal with that part anymore. Then, artist is present. I restrict everything except eye gaze no touching and no talking, just conditioner is sitting and eye gaze. There, I lived human spirit because I knew the key how to do that. That was the moment that actually, the only they can do is to go into themselves. But I need all these years in between to get
1: that twice. 36 years <laughs> in between. between the two. Yeah. Throughout your career, you've created performances around self-infliction. You have Razor Blades to the Stomachs and Lips of Thomas, A Bed of Fire and Rhythm Five, taking pills for schizophrenia and Rhythm 2. Oh my God, sounds so terrible. <laughs> but this performance in Rhythm 0 is different, like you said, because others are causing the pain. And I wonder how much you're drawing from your experiences growing up in post-war Yugoslavia. Here's a passage from your memoir. When I was small, when my mother and sister would slap me, I got blue bruises all over. My nose would bleed constantly. Then... When I lost my first baby tooth, the bleeding didn't stop for three months. I had to sleep sitting up in bed so I wouldn't choke. Finally, my parents took me to doctors to see what was wrong with me. At first, they thought it was leukemia. My mother and father put me in the hospital. I was there for almost a year. I was six. This was the happiest time of my childhood.
2: It's true. <laughs>
3: I sound so dramatic now. (laughs) I look with total optimism and enthusiasm about this all hell I went through because I make me stronger. And uh, I also understood this intention of my mother because, you know, in this diaries I'm talking about her not ever... Kiss me or tell me I love you or something like that. And I never understood that coldness and the really suffering as a child was so much for that. But then when she died, I find her diaries and I read these diaries. And if I read one page of this diary during her lifetime, my relation to my mother would be very different. Why is that? Because she was emotional, suffering, father being totally unfaithful all the time, you know, have to have her career, two children to take care. And it was so hard. And I understand in her mind, the only way to make me strong is to make me warrior and cut me from all the emotional bullshit. That's how she saw it. But I didn't know that. I only knew this one that died. And then I really forgive this whole thing. So I'm looking this like just experience, but also the later on the things that I done to my body. It's not reason because I wanted to suffer or I want to immerse in pain. It was much more related to the shamanism, to the rituals and different cultures. All of them deal with the facing the pain of the body and understanding the pain of the body. And actually liberate themselves from the fear of the pain. And the, I just stage these things in the front of the public, go through this. And if I can do it to myself and do this, the public can also get rid of their fear of the pain. Because pain is something that you can open the door. Pain keeps the secrets. It's kind of complicated to explain all that, but in a way, you know, right now, I mean do I look too sick, do I look you, you know, unhealthy or I'm something disturbed? No, I actually pretty free because I understood the structure. And this was, you know, one of the reasons how to enlarge your consciousness by getting rid of fears that you have. Basic fear of pain, of dying, of suffering. And I had plenty in my life and
1: took me 50 years to work this out. Do you wish you could have forgave your mother or mended your relationship before she passed away? Yeah,
3: very much so. As I said, if I just read one page of Diary, it would be different. And I'm so sorry, I never did. My mother was a national hero that I didn't know either till I found the, actually the article and the medals in the little box under her bed because she never talked about the war. And my father always talked about the war. He was also a hero, but a different story. And she never talked. And she always had the light in her bedroom on. And I was always thinking because she's afraid of dark. And I don't think she was afraid of dark. She was pretty much have the guts and that was an amazing story. Do you want to know the story, how she got the hero? I know the story, but I would love for you to tell it. So she she um, was the commander of the Red Cross. She was like, I don't know, 27 too, like your age. On the front lines, picking up wounded soldiers to bring them in safety to the hospital. And there was occupation of Belgrade. And she had a truck with the six nurses, driver. And she pick up on the streets of Belgrade, soldiers, 46 of them put inside the car, and was driving to get out to Belgrade to the hospital, which was not occupied. And in the process, the driver got killed, and uh, she had to remove all the soldiers with the six nurses to the sidewalk. and. The, Truck start getting fire, and she ran into the fire truck and take this uh, the land phone that she can phone the hospital to send another truck. In meantime, four nurses got killed. So she's now with one, two nurses and her. New truck came, got all the soldiers back to the, tr- the new truck. Forty six of them saved their life.
1: Not bad. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> Not bad at all. I keep thinking about her because. Throughout your memoir, you reference your relationship with her, especially in relation to how you loved. You write, When I think back on all that happened between Ule and me and Paolo and me, I often wonder what I contributed to each split, and I can't help believing that the need to be loved and taken care of that my mother never satisfied was a hurt I brought to every man I was ever with and something that they couldn't fix. You're 75 now. How do you think about those loves today?
3: Oh, God, you know, I don't think anymore because in the past and each of them I suffer and And uh, love with Paul really broke my heart. And this is the reason why I done all this, uh, you know, the seven deaths of Maria Carlos because in her life, you know, Onazis broke her heart and she died. And for me, my work saved me from that dying, but I wanted to do something in, in memory of her. But finally, and right now, since five years, I'm in a relationship who is like, wow, I can't believe this is really happening. I've always believed the second shoes fall down and something terrible happen because it's based on trust and love and happiness and incredibly peacefulness. And this so unknown territory for me. <laughs> and, and it's working. So I think all the understanding and all mistakes and the kind of knowledge I get from the old failed relationships, kind of pour into this one that actually I think I'm more happy in my life than ever been. And it's like
1: very unknown territory to walk in. In fact, it's the exact opposite of territory we started with. Absolutely. It takes
3: a long time. But also, age is not bad at all because, you know, if you're old and sick, that really sucks. But when you're old and happy,
1: and wise, I never want to go back when I was 20, 30, 40. It was too hard work. So it's okay. So basically, I want to get this right. You said in the beginning of this conversation, if you had a happy childhood, it's going to be pretty hard for you as an artist. Yeah. But if you're a happy adult at 75, does that work? Oh, yes, works because you have all
3: this knowledge that you didn't have when you are 25. And that knowledge counts a lot. Honestly, this is like, for me, the last part of my life, and it's so full of optimism and hope and happiness. And always I say the same thing always about dying. All that I'm worrying about is to die without fear, consciously, and without anger. And if I succeed this, I've done well in this life. Because, you know, as again Sufi said, life is a dream and that is waking up. You said your last performance piece will be your death. Not really that Funeral. Because that, you know, we don't know. But funeral, yes. <laughs> Organized funeral. <laughs> what is this project? I just wanted to have happy ending. It's so important to have happy ending, you know, of one fulfilled life. And I really feel that I'm very lucky that my life is very fulfilled with so much events. Good, bad, difficult together. All of them... Just is kind of wonderful. That act of dying, you can't predict when. But the funeral, I don't want anybody organized for me. I like to be organized myself. To be celebration, dirty jokes, <laughs> lots of music, nobody wear black, lots of food, and really remembering all of these happy moments. Good music. You see, looks like dad is knocking on
1: our door or something. <laughs> It does no. It does sound like <laughs> death is knocking on our door. It means, I, it means we have to wrap up. It
3: looks like. I w- this was
1: such a wonderful conversation. And you hardly eat any cookie. I'm going to eat some cookies. I have two things for you. We started with the artist is present. I want to go to one day after two months of performing when a man in a wheelchair arrives at the front of the line. The guard's... Remove the other chair, and put him in his wheelchair across the table from you. And you said, I looked at this man, and I realized that I didn't even know if he had legs. The table was in the way. What happened that night when you went home? Then I realized that I actually
3: don't need a table that is some kind of social structure that I constructed from the beginning. But I could not know there before because this atrium is such a huge space. And if I just had the two chairs I felt it was very little because it's already so minimal. You know, I put a table there. And this is the fear generally of very young artists when they think they need to put lots of stuff. And I literally, all my career, remove, remove, remove. But now I was only two chairs and table. I think, okay, this is pretty minimal. But then when this man came and I realized, I don't know if he have legs or not, I understood I don't need this table either. And this was incredibly important realization. Then, when I came to Moma next day, the security manager told me that it's not possible, that this buffer between me and audience, that you have to have it. I say yes, but this is my decision. And I removed the table. At that, everything changed. I was dressed in white and all energy was like so dense and relation was so intense, but I was ready for that intense relation because I already sit there two months before. So this is the process that you can't actually speed it up. You have to go slowly till you realize that you don't need anything.
1: This is the only time that you've made a major change in the middle of a piece, right? Yes,
3: only time. But it was totally necessary. And minimality of this piece, you know, because its minimal is so immaterial already. And that was the piece who changed my life. Why did it change your life? Yeah, because I realized that actually, I have to work with the audience. That my work is people. That's my work. And the people have to also do the work themselves. This is why I create the Brahmachari method. This is why I create institute. It's all new function.
1: Removing the table from that performance, it reminded you of an Indian folk tale. With a coffin. Can you share that with people? This king who buried a very beautiful
3: princess in the world and the fall in love. And there was the most happy kingdom in the world. And she could become pregnant and delivery of the child, she died. Or she became sick and she die. One of one other story, I don't remember exactly. And he was so devastated about his death that she he put her in the simple wooden coffin and looked at this coffin. And then he covered the coffin with emeralds and sapphires and gold and it was not enough. And around this coffin he created another one and then little temple. And the temple was not enough. And he make a bigger temple. And then he started growing, growing this huge kind of memorial about this beloved princess, that actually the entire kingdom become the temple of her. And then he was looking there, and there's nothing else to do. And he look and look and look and start saying to the builders, destroy the big temple, destroy the small temple, destroy this, destroy this. And then everything was left. It was just this coffin with the emeralds and jewels. And then he say, okay, now we'll remove all the jewels." And there was only this simple wooden coffin there again. And then he looked the coffin and he said, remove the coffin.
1: That's the story I teach you a lot. The story is our lives. We do all we can to fill it with people and places and things and performances and books we love. I'm looking around at your apartment, all these things. But when you die, you can't take any of this. <laughs> That's nothing.
3: And this is why Performance art is an incredible power of realization of so many things and kind of energy that other type of art doesn't have. And it's so difficult to maintain because it's immaterial, it's time-based.
1: takes everything from you. And yet, it seems you still have more to give. Till I die. <laughs> is that a promise? Yes, I don't stop. Before we go, since I never had a chance to sit across from you, during the artist is present. Yeah. Would you mind if we just sat here for a moment? Close your eyes.
3: I just want to say something. When you sit still and quiet, it's never stillness and quiet because there's so much space inside your body, in your organs, between liver and kidneys, between your heart and ribs and so on. There is a movement everywhere. Then all the planet is moving around the arcs, and then the planet is moving around the sun. And the sun and planets are moving around Milky Way, and everything is moving to another who-knows-where Galaxies, And to understand all this is really to be still. And to understand, actually, stillness is being in the moment.
1: Well, Marina Abramovich, I thank you very much for sitting in this moment with me, for all that you have done and will continue to do, and for inviting me into your home, no secrets at all no secrets but please promise and come to the workshop
3: next time to do the cleaning the house your own body
1: house seems i have some work to do okay thank you for sitting with me that's our show if you enjoyed today's episode be sure to leave us five stars on apple spotify wherever you do your listening to learn more about marina and her work visit our website at talkeasypod.com. once there you'll find our back catalog of over 300 episodes including talks with joel Meyerowitz, kehende wiley margaret atwood zadie smith toyin og ototola and tom hicks to hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or a vinyl record with writer Fran Lebowitz. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com/slash/shop. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok Our executive producer is Janik Bravo Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara And Caitlin Dryden And mixed by Andrew Vastola Our music is by Dylan Peck Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones And Ethan Seneca I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries Justin Richmond, Julie Barton, John Snars Carrie Brody, Heather Fane, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan Kira Posey, Tara Machado Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fergoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with the one and only Z-Way. Until then, stay safe and so on.